Amen. Lord, we thank you that you are a personal God who holds us in your arms, who draws us near unto yourself. We love you so much. Lord, we pray right now as we go this time in your word that you would teach us by the power of your spirit. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us tonight. May we leave this place closer to you than the way we came. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. God bless you. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand because you will need one. All right. Deuteronomy 15, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. Anybody need a Bible? All right. Well, let me again, by the way of, of somewhat brief review, catch you up a little bit. Maybe you're here for the first time or... You forgot what I taught you last week already. Maybe that's most of you. But Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. This is Moses re-giving the law to the next generation who's about to enter into the land of promise. The first ten chapters, he reminds them of what had happened to the previous generation. Now these were things that most of them, or many of them at least, knew because they were children in that previous generation and they saw what their, their parents had done. Everything from falling into idol worship when Moses was on Mount Sinai to murmuring against Moses to complaining against God about manna and water and even being faithless when it came time to enter into the land of promise and just flat out rejecting what God had told them. God promised that wasn't good enough. And they said, you know what? There's giants in the land. We're not going to go in. And so then beginning in chapter 11... He began really to speak to them more about things that were before them, things that were yet to happen. So the first 10 chapters really dealt again with things that had happened to the previous generation. And now the rest of the book, he's going to be talking about things that will face them when they enter into the land of promise. And so the first message in chapter 11, he wanted to tell them that they would obey God, that God would bless them. They'd already seen what disobedience did to their, fa- to their parents. All of them died. That 11-day journey turned into a 40-year death march because they simply wouldn't listen to God. And it's amazing because we look at that and you think, man, these children of Israel were thick. These people were stupid, right? But the reality is we do the same thing with God, don't we? God's Word so clearly tells us to do something, we think we somehow know better. And it amazes me how I do it myself and we all do it or I'll sit in a counseling session with somebody and they'll look right at me and say, yeah, the Bible says that, but... But, I got a special, no you don't, God said it, that's it, amen? And the children of Israel were told over and over, and if you'll just obey God, He will bless you. If you obey God, He will bless you. And we sometimes think, we obey God because it's a no fun bummer God who's going to smoke us with a lightning bolt if we make a mistake. But that's not the God we serve, amen? He's a heavenly Father, He's Abba, He's Daddy, He loves you, He knows what's best for you, and He gives direction to you. Because he wants you to walk in the center of of his will and to know the joy of walking in obedience and the blessing that follows. He then in chapter 12 told them there's only one true worship. He said, get rid of all the idols. Get rid of all the places where they used to worship the idols. Tear them all down. I've told you guys this before. If I was ever president of the United States, I'd be president for about a day and a half. Because I would have them bulldoze every non-Christian place. i just bulldoze them all. Buddhist temples, bulldoze them. Take them down. People say, but that's just, I don't care. I don't care. Impeach me tomorrow. But today they're coming down, right? Why? Because it's idol worship. Amen? And we've got so politically correct today that, oh, well, if you're a Muslim or... No, those are all lies. 
Jesus Christ alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And he said, guys, when you go in, there's going to be places of idol worship everywhere, and you remove them completely, lest you fall into the temptation of worshiping these false gods. And he said, I don't want you to take care of the idols. I want you to remove their names from existence. I want you to wipe out the groves. I want you to eliminate them completely. So God makes it very clear. Because he knew that their tendency was to fall into idol worship. He knew that their tendency, tendency was much like ours, that we become like those we hang out with. If you hang out with the world, you become like the world. You become desensitized to sin. He said, remove it completely. Chapter 13, I titled the message, What Does God Think About Other Religions? Pretty clear. Not good, right? What did he say? If somebody tries to entice you to go after another god, what should you do to them? What did he say back then? Kill them. That's pretty clear. Take them out in the middle of the city and stone them to death. What if one of your family members quietly says to you at home, you know, I'm thinking maybe we should go check out Baal. Like the drum beat over there. Sounds pretty good. He said if they do that, take them out and kill them. Now, I told you that week that we're not supposed to kill Mormons that come to our house, right? Uh, next Mormon that comes to my house, I got rocks ready. No, don't do that. But back then, God knew that they were susceptible to follow the false gods. And he said, don't remove the places. Remove the temptation. And if anybody says anything about another god, kill them. Because it will poison you. And it would have. And and a matter of fact, it did. And then last week in chapter 14, we saw the beginning of him talking about living all of your life for the Lord. That God desires that we live for him completely. Not just an hour a week or three hours a week, or not just when it's convenient, but we're to live for God in every aspect of our lives. And the three areas we looked at last week, he talked about that they should live for God even in the way that they mourn. The world mourns and they grieve and they weep, and it said that the pagans would gash themselves. They would gash their faces and cut themselves because they were so distraught about somebody passing away that there was no hope left. But as Christians, we grieve, but not as those without hope. Amen? Because for us, as it says in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians, death, where is your sting? There is no sting to death for believers. Christians die well. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Amen? And so he told them, when you mourn, don't mourn like the pagans do. Don't, oh, right? And just get to the place where you just want to, you're falling out and you're cutting yourself and you're torturing yourself because you just can't take it. Again, when our loved ones die, it hurts because we miss them. But at the same time, we have hope because we will see them again. And where they are, they wouldn't come back even if they could. Amen? We, we should be thankful for them. We grieve for ourselves. We don't grieve for them. We don't need to grieve for them. But he said, not only in the way that you mourn, but even in what they ate. And this was mainly, again, to keep them away from idol worship. If you remember from last week, he said, these animals are clean and these are unclean. He said, eat the clean animals... And the clean animals had a divided hoof and they chewed their cud, if you remember that from last week. We talked about what the significance is of that. Those that had a divided walk, those that, a picture for us of being set apart unto God. But also the word for chewing the cud is meditate. And so for us, you know, we should be meditating on the word and living a set apart life. And the clean animals chewed the cud and they had a divided hoof. If they had a divided hoof and they didn't chew the cud, that wasn't good enough. Just like for you and I, living a moral life isn't good enough. If you live a moral life and you don't know God, it doesn't make any difference. You know, people say that all the time. Well, they're good people. In comparison to what? Not in comparison to Christ, we've all fallen short. Amen? 
But he said also it's not good enough to just meditate on the word and not have it impact your life. And so the main reason he did it was because he knew the pagans ate different things. And he said, if I define their diet, they're not going to fall into the trap of going and being with them. They can't have dinner with them because they eat different stuff. But also, to, from, uh, along with separating them from the world, it was to protect them. You know, it's interesting that the bubonic plague struck in Europe and one-fourth of all the Europeans died and the Jews were untouched. You know why? Because of the diet God gave them. God knew the health concerns. God knew that, you know, they didn't have refrigeration like we do today. They didn't have the, the ways of preserving things. And people got really sick and God had them eat a diet that kept them healthy. And sometimes we, God's commanding us to do something just like they didn't fully get it back then. Why can't we eat camel? I wouldn't have had a problem with that, but why can't we eat camel? God said, don't eat those, right? Because he knew that those who did would get sick. And so God was not just separating them from the world, but he was protecting them. And God desires to do the same thing in each of us. And praise the Lord that he loves you guys, he loves us so much. And then lastly, he talked to them about how they gave. He told them that they were to bring it to the temple that it was an act of worship, and he taught them always to put God first in their life. Now we're going to continue looking at that tonight in just how they gave, but we want to look as we continue on that he desires again that they serve God in every aspect of their life. It's not just on Sunday and Wednesday. It's not just in a time of worship and a time of prayer. We don't pray and then get, on, get in our car and drive to work and lack like the world. We are Christians. We are to be set apart, and we are to walk with God. You know, those in this world today who are caught up in the world system measure success by how much they have. They give greater honor to those who have more. They'll forsake all else in pursuit of their goal. They'll work 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. And you know what? They'll only give to others if they're going to be repaid. And they'll only give to others if they're going to get good interest. And if they don't get it, they'll sue others to get their stuff back. But we're going to see in the chapter tonight is God's heart is that you and I would realize that everything in our hands belongs to the Lord. And whatever we have, we use it for His glory. And if He chooses to have it go out of our hands into someone else's, then praise the Lord. And we're just, God's called us to simply be good stewards. And remember that the, in the world, they may look, what, what's in it for me? But you and I should not be motivated by selfish gain. We should be focused, again, on how God might use us to reach others. So in tonight's chapter, God's going to give Israel a set of commands in regards to, one, forgiving debts. Two, giving to those in need. Three, releasing those who are bound to them to serve them. And then lastly, what to do with the first fruits or the best of their possessions. God had called Israel to treat each other different. They were to treat each other different. They were to view their wealth differently. And we as Christians should be the same way. We should not treat each other the same way the world treats each other. They shall know us by the love we have one for another. That's what the Bible says. And also, the way that we handle our worldly possessions should be totally different than the world. You know, it's interesting. I think I told you guys this before that I had a guy I witnessed to forever. And he just wouldn't, ha he just wouldn't hear it. This is in Southern California. He just, I don't, I don't care. I don't want to hear it. And we used to go to lunch once in a while. We'd go to lunch. I'd talk to him about the Lord. And he just would never go to church. I'd invite him. I'd talk to him about God. He didn't want to hear it. And then one day, it's amazing what God will use. We're driving back from lunch, and there's a, like a blind hill going upward, and it was real wet, and I come over the hill, and there's a traffic jam, and there's cars stuck in the middle of the intersection. The light was green, so I'm going a good speed. I hit my brakes, and I slam into this pile of cars, and my car basically just gets totaled. And so I get out of the car, and he gets out of the car, and I'm like, you okay? And I said, yeah, and I, you sure? 
yeah, all right, well, okay, well, let's, let's call a tow truck. And he stopped me, and he goes, I'm going to church with you. What? You're going to church with me? He goes, dude, I've never seen anybody react to a car accident like that. There was no cursing, no yelling, no screaming. You weren't upset. You weren't mad. I'm going to church with you. I'm like, dude, if I'd known that, I'd have wrecked my car six months ago. <laughs> but it's amazing how we are to treat our possessions different because God will use even that to be a testimony to the world around us that stuff just doesn't matter when you got your eyes on Jesus. Amen? I mean, he's all that we need. You don't realize that, that he's all you need until he's all you have. And I meet people in India and different places where they seemingly have nothing and they have more joy than anybody I've met because they're so in love with the Lord. Now, it's okay to have stuff, but don't you know, make sure you possess your stuff and it doesn't possess you. And again, it's so different than the world's perspective. The pagan world around them was all about stuff. And they were, again, really struggled with giving anybody anything. So the message tonight... I've entitled Agape, Agape Love in Action, or Giving When It Doesn't Make Sense. So Agape Love in Action, the word agape is selfless love. Aaron or Eros is selfish love. What can you do for me? Agape is what can I do for you? John 3, 16, for God so agape the world that he gave his only begotten son. Agape produces a heart that gives, a heart that esteems others greater than itself. So we're going to see agape love in action and these directions he's giving to the children of Israel and giving when it doesn't make sense. So we're going to see first the releasing of debts. We're going to see them giving generously even when they knew they wouldn't get paid back. That's a hard thing to do. Then setting those who were bound free, that were bound by love and not by duty. And then lastly, that we're to give our first fruits to the Lord. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 15, looking at agape love in action, giving when it doesn't make sense. First, we're going to look at the releasing of debt every seven years. Man, I'd love if this was still true today. Wouldn't this be great? Verse 1. At the end of every seven years. Now, earlier in Exodus and Leviticus, he had told them they were to have a Sabbath year every seven years. They were to plant and they were to harvest every, for six years. And the seventh year, they were to plant nothing. And they were to take, literally take the year off and let the ground rest and trust God to provide. Now, that sounds really good, right? I'd like to have one year out of every seven off. Oh, I worked six years, take a year off. Sweet, right? I mean, we'd be into that. But you know what? It also took faith to do it. Because when they did it, they were having to say, okay, God, I trust you. You've told me to do this. My income's going to stop because I'm not growing anything. And I'm going to have to trust that you're going to naturally provide for me. Stuff's just going to come out of the ground wild and and other ways you're going to provide for me, but Lord, I trust you, and I'm going to do it. And so this was a calling that, that God had placed on their lives, to trust Him, to have that Sabbath year. And during that Sabbath year, again, allow the, the land to rest, no work was to be done, and again, while it sounds wonderful, it also takes a lot of faith. They'd have to trust God to provide for their animals. Their animals would starve, right, if they didn't have food. They'd have to trust God to take care of the herds and and provide the grain and the vegetables they needed. There was also something called the year of Jubilee every 50th year. So every 50th year, they had to take two years off. Because, right, 7 times 7 is 49. So the 49th and 50th year, they grew nothing. And they trusted God. Now, he's not promoting laziness. Let me make that real clear. What he's promoting is faith. He's teaching them to trust God. Trust me. Trust me. Don't grow anything. I will provide for you. So it took faith to allow the land to lay fallow, and it took trust in God that He would provide for their needs. You know, He'd done it in the wilderness. He dropped manna out of the sky. 
He provided water from the rock. He can certainly provide for them, but they must have faith in him. And it says there, and you shall grant a release of debts. Now here's the other thing that happened on the Sabbath year. If anybody owed you money, you forgave them the debt. So that means if you're on the debt side, every seven years, they come in and, okay, your mortgage, clean. You don't owe anything on your house. You owe nothing on your cars. You owe nothing on your credit cards. How many of you like that program? Oh, man, I, I go on six and a half years, I'd be buying a $2 million house, right? Give me that one. I've got to pay for six months. It's all good, right? And, and that was the, the way God was getting them yet again to trust him, getting, him, getting them to, to see that God was a God who was faithful to provide. Now, why did he forgive the debts during that seventh year? Because people were not going to be growing any crops, so they wouldn't be able to make any money, so they wouldn't be able to pay their debts. Now, this sounds great, or it sounds brutal, depending on which side you're on. Because if you're the guy loaning money, how are you feeling about this program? So I can't grow anything, and that guy that owes me all that money doesn't have to pay me? What's up with that? So on one side, it was a blessing, and on the other side, it required even greater faith to trust that God would provide. Now in the text again, he's preparing them to enter into the land of promise, and he's telling them, when you get there, I, I don't ever want you to be a people who are indebted. That's a great lesson for all of us, by the way. The Bible says, owe no man anything but to what? To love the Lord. Don't owe man anything. Now, do I think it's wrong to have a mortgage? No. It's an investment. But I would say this. Don't let your house own you. I used to call them golden handcuffs. They got golden parachutes, right? Golden handcuffs. You know, early on in ministry for me, I had a job where I was making a, a lot of money in my early 20s. And I was told to buy the most expensive house they'll let you buy. Right? Because they go up in value, right? Good. Well, I did that. And guess what happened? I was in a place where it was all aerospace. And aerospace went sideways. And every third house was empty. And my house went down to being worth half of what I paid for it. That's not good. And I'm in, So guess what? I owed all this money in my house. I couldn't sell it for it. People were walking away from their houses left and right and giving them back to the bank. As a Christian, I'm not supposed to do that. Let my yes be yes and my no be no. And when I say I'm going to pay for something, I'm going to pay for it. It's not the bank's fault, right? And so I was stuck in that house literally for 10 years. I couldn't sell it for half of what it was worth. I couldn't rent it out. And I called it golden handcuffs. And sometimes we get so caught up in buying possessions of the world that we got to make a certain amount of money to keep them going. And then we're, we're so busy doing that, we can't honor God with our time. And may you be, make sure you pray before you buy anything. Amen? When you go buy a house, you go like, just pray and say, Lord, is this your will? God wants you to have a place to live. God knows you need a car to drive. But just pray and make sure you've heard from the Lord. And God's heart here for the children of Israel was that their debts would be canceled. So every six years, everybody started fresh. If somebody was in debt up to their eyeballs, it all went away. And it was a blessing because then people were not burdened by their debt. Verse 2. And this is the form of release. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it. He shall not require it of his neighbor or his brother because it is called the Lord's release. I think God's making a clear point here. Because you know some people would be tempted to say, dude, you still owe me. I don't care what they say. You still owe me. You told me you were going to pay. You're paying. That's it. Right? It says here, it is whose release? The Lord's. That's calling in the big guns, right? This is God who said this. So this is God's plan. And when this date comes... Everybody is out of debt, and nobody would be poor anymore. And again, it all sounds great, 
depending on which side you're on. This was a command of God. Obedience was an acknowledgement of God's ownership of everything. If you were the person that everybody owed money to, and then when God said, okay, it's, it's all clean, and you said, that's okay, that's fine. What does that show about your heart? It shows that you realize it's all God's anyway. It doesn't matter. It's okay. It's God's house, God's stuff, God's land. It all belongs to Him. I was just watching it. I was just taking care of it. It's, it's back in His hands. That's fine. And again, our heart ought to be the same way. And just remove that burden from the poor. It, re, it, re, it produced gratitude and restoration in the hearts of the poor and graciousness and desperation in the hearts of the wealthy. Because here's what would happen. Those who were really poor were blessed because their debt was gone. But those who were really wealthy before, who might have got caught up in their wealth and started to feel comfortable in their bank account, all of a sudden they were desperate for God again. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced that. You know, you're doing really well financially and you start to trust in your bank account and God says, well, let me just take care of that so I can get your eyes back on me. Because we can fall into that trap. We can start to trust in in our 401k or our stuff. It was funny, years ago, a few years ago, I was in Calvary San Jose, and man, we had so many millionaires in our church, it was scary. You know why? Because everybody's company went public. And I never forget, you know, I was one of the pastors, and sometimes I would count the tithes. There'd be checks in there with six figures on them. And those people just, you know, they, got, they made $12 million overnight, and they're writing a, a tithe check to the church. And, and what was amazing is they were all, a bunch of them were millionaires, and then a year later, almost nobody was a millionaire anymore. Because the stock market went like this. And those who were putting their faith in the stock market, they were hopeless and they were dying, right? And it made them desperate for God yet again. And may God keep do whatever He needs to do in our lives to make us desperate for Him. Again, it didn't make good financial sense to forgive the debts that, from a worldly perspective. But it was an opportunity to be blessed by God and to be obedient to God's command. Look what it says there. And he shall require it of his neighbor or his brother, because it is called, he shall not require it, the Lord's release. Now look at this. Of a foreigner, you may require it, but you shall give up your claim to what is owed by your brother. Now isn't that interesting? A foreigner or an unbeliever, they could require them to pay their debt. Why? Because an unbeliever would continue to grow things. They would continue to plant their fields. And they were not those who were trusting in the Lord. They were, they were those, again, who were living off of the land. For the believer, the debt had been removed. For the unbeliever, the debt remained. What does that sound like a picture of? It's our sin. Clear picture of God's grace towards us. We were all in debt beyond what we could ever pay. There's no, we couldn't be good enough. We couldn't strive hard enough to have our debt paid for. But through Jesus Christ's death on the cross and the atoning of His bloodshed for our sins, our debt is forgiven and we can enter into His rest. But for those who do not believe, those who have yet to repent, their debt remains. I want you to see something tonight. We're going to see five or six pictures of the cross in this chapter. Over and over and over, Jesus is on every page of the Old Testament. You can find a page you don't think He's on, bring it by my office and we'll find it, okay? Because the Lord is on every page. And here we see again, those who had who were believers, their debt was removed. Those who were not, their debt remained. Those of you who have been born again, your sin is forgiven. Those who have not given their lives to the Lord, their sins remain. Verse 4. Except when there may be no poor among you, for the Lord will greatly bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance. He said, if you guys will all obey me, there will be no debt. Nobody will be poor. 
they'll all obey me. If everybody who has a ton gives to those who don't have enough, everybody will be taken care of. Do you think that ever happened? What do you think? No. I want to say this. Socialism doesn't work because man is wicked. Right? Because if you don't have to work to get paid, you're not going to. Right? I mean, they keep saying, well, we'll all share, and nobody will be really rich, and everybody will have plenty, and that will work out great. But every time they put that model together, the society collapses. Because if I can lay on my couch and make $1,000 a month, or I can go work 80 hours a week, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay on my couch. And so that's what people did, and that's why socialism doesn't work. But in God's model, if all of those who truly loved God were always looking out for those within the body who were hurting, and they automatically ministered to them, he says, there'll be no poor among you. Because all of it's mine anyway, and if you guys will be faithful and obedient and seek my face, then nobody will be poor. There'll be no poor among you. But you know what? It never happened. Because we know, again, that the sinfulness and the wickedness of man, the obedience to God's command would have brought the end to anybody being poor, but sadly, people continue to be selfish. Agape love in action as those given charge of a lot of God's provision were to give to those in need of God's blessing. And when they were, if they were to obey God, then God would be glorified and everybody would be taken care of. Verse 5, only if you carefully obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe with care all the commandments which I command you today. If you obey, blessing would come through faithful uh, obedience to the word of God. Disobedience, selfishness, and rebellion would resort in the children of Israel missing out on God's highest. Can I tell you if you're here tonight and you don't, let me walk out of here with anything. If you'll walk in obedience to the word of God, you will, be, you will have a blessed life. Will your life be perfect? No. Will you have trials? Absolutely. But you know what? God will be glorified in and through you and you'll have an impact on the world that lasts for eternity. Amen? But if you rebel against God and you do things your own way, you're going to miss out on God's highest. And he tells them, if you guys will just obey, there's plenty for everybody. Everybody will be taken care of. Verse 6, For the Lord your God will bless you just as He promised you. You shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. If you will obey my commands to let the land rest every seven years, to forgive the debts of your brothers, then God will bless you so richly that there will be such an abundance that other countries are going to come and ask you for stuff. Everybody in the country will be taken care of. Every child of Israel will be taken care of. And other people are going to be coming to you and you're going to be able to help them. And my name's going to be glorified. And he said, you won't have to borrow from anybody and nobody will ever reign over you if you'll just obey me. That's all I ask you to do. And we know that sadly, Israel did not obey this command. They would have been the most prosperous nation on the earth, but sadly, Israel did not observe the Sabbath year. You know how many times Israel observed the Sabbath year after God told them to? Zero. He tells them what to do, and what do they do? They get in the land of promise, they forget. You know what, though? I'm going to plant my... Well, maybe other people don't have to plant, but I've got to plant, because if I don't plant, I'm not going to have any food. And if I don't have any food, I can't feed my herds and my flocks, and I'm going to go without, so I'm not, I, we just got to do it. And so you know what happened? For the next 490 years, they disobeyed God, and they just kept planting their fields every, every seventh year. And you know what God did? God put them into captivity. Babylon came and captured Israel and put them into captivity for how long? 70 years. You know what? God got all his Sabbath years at once. 
For 490 years, they disobeyed God. And then for 70 years, they sat in captivity and the ground set and got its rest that it was supposed to get every seven years. It's a lot better to do it God's way. Amen? You don't have to be in captivity for 70 years. You'll just trust the Lord. But sadly, they thought they knew better than God. And sadly, they missed out on God's highest. Instead of being someone who ruled other, over other nations, they were in captivity. Instead of being those who could lend to other nations, they were now bankrupt. And they, they suffered because they did not trust the Lord. You know what? You will never get ahead by disobeying God's commands. You'll never get ahead. Ever. Can I encourage you with something? God will honor your decision to go to your boss and tell him, I need to have work off because I go to church. And if he doesn't, go get another job. You know what? And you might say, oh, Pastor Dave, but you don't understand. No, I do understand. I know God. Amen? He says, forsake not together yourselves together unless you have a job that makes you work Wednesday, Sunday. And, right? Is that what the Bible says? He says, forsake not together yourselves together and all the more as the day approaches. And I can tell you right now, if you just go and say, look, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. God comes first in my life. When I'm here, I'm going to do my job as unto the Lord. I'm going to be the best employee you have. But you know, I need time off to be in fellowship. And I, it, it breaks my heart to see guys working two and three jobs, to thinking they're going to get ahead, and they're putting God on the back burner. Can I tell you right now, you will never get ahead disobeying God's command. Israel missed out on God's highest because they trusted in human understanding rather than obeying the Word of God. They said, you know, if we don't plant stuff, we're going to starve. If, you know, if we, if we listen to what God says and we, and we let everybody not pay us back that owes us money, we're going to run out of money. This is a stupid plan. Now, if you went to a financial planner and you said, okay, I'm going to buy a farm. Here's what I'm going to do. First of all, I'm going to loan a bunch of people money. They don't have to pay me back, by the way. And then I'm, I'm, not, going to, I'm not going to plant stuff every seventh year. I'm just going to leave the ground there. Now, did you know, by the way, that agriculture, they found that that is the best thing you can do? If you don't plant stuff every seventh year, the best thing you can do for the soil, and it'll be more fruitful in the other six years combined than if you planted it for seven. So does God know what he's talking about? Of course he does. He's God. Amen. And so, sadly, though, they thought they knew better than God. So they tried to have another plan, and they didn't trust His Word. Agape love in action. Giving when it doesn't make sense. Releasing debts of those who owe unto you. And listening to God to take a Sabbath rest. To take time away from work to go be with the Lord. To take time away from work to go be involved in, in ministry. If you're too busy to serve God, you're too busy. Amen? You need to slow down. Now, do your job as unto the Lord. But God desires that we, again, take time to do ministry on His behalf and to minister to others. So, verses 7 through 11. Giving generously to those who could never repay you. Now, a lot of times when we loan money to somebody, which a lot of people don't like to do, period. But if they loan money to somebody, they want to know, okay, now when's this coming back? And what's the interest rate? And... Can I tell you that I just don't see that as a biblical thing? And I've had other pastors say, well, no, yeah, you've got to write a promissory note. People need to be responsible. I'll tell you my credo for loaning money. I will not loan somebody money unless I'm willing to give it to them. I'll loan it to them. They pay me back great if they don't find. You know why? Because you know what it does? It drives a wedge between people. You ever seen this happen? You loan somebody money, they need it, and then every time they, they don't want to see you because they don't have the money, Right? So they hide from you. They, go to, they don't come to church on Sunday, and they're worried about the money they owe you. And I remember that happening one time, and finally the Lord just put them on my heart. I, 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 if someone needed it, and I felt like I'd go, and I'd say, you know what? I'm just going to give this to you. If you decide to pay me back, fine. If not, don't worry about it. Matter of fact, don't, you know what? Don't pay me back. 
Give it to the Lord in the offering, and I won't even know if you did it or not, okay? It's between you and God, and if you can't do it, don't worry about it. Because I don't want somebody not coming to church or not coming to my house or not being my friend anymore because I loaned them money, which is irrelevant anyway, amen? And so this is a principle here that there's going to be this temptation to fall into this trap because as this, this seventh year approached, people would get a little nervous. If somebody came to your house a month before the seventh year started, right? Okay, well, they, you know, we're kind of a little short. You think you can loan me some money? And the guy's like, dude, in four days, the seventh year starts. I'm never going to see that again. I, I don't, you know, talk to me in a year. You know, when the eighth year starts, let's work out a loan plan, right? That's what the Lord's addressing here. Look what he says. If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of the gates of your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need whatever he needs. God commands those who had plenty to be generous with those who had need. But I want you to notice something. Don't miss it. He says to whom? Your what? Your brethren. I believe that the number one place we start giving is within the body of Christ. Amen? Now, should we give to others? Absolutely. Should we have a burden for those who are hurting? Without question. But where should it start? Right here. My heart is that if somebody in the body is hurting, we need to minister to them first. And that's what this verse is really all about. He says, to your brethren and those who are in your land, those who are with you, minister to them first. And I believe again that the first ministry of the church, as far as giving, is to give to those within the body. Before we minister to somebody halfway around the world, it would be, a, it would be really sad if we were giving to people halfway around the world and we had people in our own church that were starving. Amen? We didn't, let's begin here. Now, I said this last week, and I want to say it one more time to make it really clear. You give those, to those who have need, not those who are lazy. Amen? Now, what I'm, now, again, what I mean by that is there are those who just won't work. Those who don't want to do it. Those who want to, and we should not prop up sin. Okay? Now, anybody comes by our office is looking for money for food, I'm going to give them, I'm going to give them a Safeway card and give them food. That's going to happen every time. But I'm not going to prop up behavior where someone's not been working for a year and a half. And they're not planning on looking for a job anytime soon. If I give them money, what am I doing? I'm propping up the wrong behavior. The Bible says, a man who does not work shall not eat. Amen? And so unless... So, now, if somebody's infirmed or sick or unable to work because they've got a, a, a really radical disease, then we take care of those people. Amen? But when somebody's just not working because they don't want to... The Bible talks about orphans and widows and, again, those who are desperately in need. Verse 9, Beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of release is at hand, and your eye be evil against your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry out to the Lord against you, and it becomes sin among you. So don't hold back because the Sabbath year is coming up and you're afraid he won't pay you back. You know what's interesting? There's some great stories that I really love. And I'm not, a, I don't, I'm not a, you know, I don't believe in this whole seed giving thing. That's not a biblical, that's not biblical. It's just not. Okay? We don't give to God so he'll give us stuff. Amen? We give to God because we love him. Lord, I love you. It's all yours and I'm giving to you. Now, can we outgive God? No, you can't. Because if you're faithful to give to God, then he will put more into your care because he knows that if you've been faithful in the small things, you'll be faithful in the greater things. Now, so, now, God knows if you're trying to manipulate him. 
God knows if you're writing a big check, so you can see how much comes back, right? God knows your heart. And too often you see these guys on TV, and they'll give your seed offering, and pl- that's just not a biblical, that's not biblical. And you know what, it breaks my heart, because all these guys, you, you know, they do exposés on them, they're making $100 million a year, and they're living, that's not the Lord. That's not the Lord. You got a poor person who's living on Social Security writing a $1,000 check to a guy who's making $70 million. Something's wrong. Checks ought to be going the other direction. Amen? It ought to be ministering to the people. But God says here, He's saying to them, don't, don't be greedy and don't hold back because you're worried about whether or not you're going to get paid back. If you can't write the check cheerfully, if you can't give to someone cheerfully, if you can't tithe to the Lord cheerfully, don't give it. I told you last week, the word there for cheerful giver is hilarion. That's where you get the word hilarious. If you can't give with hilarity, don't give. Because God is not looking for your money. What He really wants is your heart. Amen? And you know what? When we give, we give because we love the Lord. Now, I love this story. Some of you have probably heard of it. There was a guy who, who owned a little cereal company. Christian man. And he decided he was going to give 90% to God. I'm going to give 90%. I'm going to keep 10 and I'm going to give 90. And he gave 90% to God. And people said, you're out of your mind. And he said, you know what? I'm just going to give it to God, and I'll live on 10. I'll be fine. And the name of the company is Quaker Oats. Things kind of worked out okay for him. You know why? Because he just said, you know what, Lord, it's all yours. And he continued to give 90%. He said, God, whatever, I'll just live on what's left. And you know what? God just, again, not giving so we can get, but giving because we love God, and we realize that's the priority. Verse 10. You shall surely give to him, and your heart should not be grieved when you give to him. Because for this thing, the Lord your God will bless you in all your works, in all of which you put your hand. For the poor will never cease from the land. Therefore I command you, saying, you shall open your hand wide to your brother, to, to the poor and your needy in the land. Okay. In verse 4 he told him, if the poor cease. Didn't he say that? And now back here he says, the poor will never cease. You know why? Because God knew they weren't going to obey. He said, if you'll obey me, there will be no poor in your land. Now in verse 11, he says, the poor will never cease. Because he knew they wouldn't walk in obedience. He's God and he knows. But he says here, don't hold back because you're worried about the person paying you back. Just give because you know who he says, who does he promise here will take care of you? Who will will take care of you if the person doesn't pay you back? God does. It says here, the Lord your God will bless all that you put your hands to. So whatever, again, if you give and you give as unto the Lord and you're doing it directed by the Spirit, God's going to take care of you. He's not going to let you go without. Proverbs 14 says, He who despises his neighbor sins, but he who has mercy on the poor, happy is he. Proverbs 19 says, He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and he will pay him back what he has given. Do you think God will, will be faithful to his word? He says, if you give to those who are hurting, God will repay you. Now again, we don't give so God will repay us, but we give trusting that God's going to take care of it. We don't have to sit down and write out our check. We say, Lord, I trust you. So agape love in action, giving when it doesn't make sense, releasing others of debt, and giving generously to those who could never repay. The ultimate example of both of these is Jesus Christ. He released us from an insurmountable debt, sin, Seven, every seven years, seven in the Bible is the number of what? Completeness or perfection, that's a picture of Christ. And also, he gave to us a gift that we could never repay. Amen? We were indebted, and we would never get out of it, and he took care of it. And he gave us a a gift that we can never, ever repay. Who's the ultimate example of both of these things we've seen so far? 
The Lord's not telling us something to, to do something that He hasn't done Himself. He's telling us just to follow His example. I believe that an even greater picture of Christ is going to come in these last two sections here. Let's look at the next one. Setting those who are bound free. Bound by love, not by duty. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, then in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. So a Hebrew could become a slave in several ways. One, to pay off a debt. Let's say that you owed somebody a ton of money, you had no way of paying it back, you would be their indentured servant, and you would work for them until you paid it off. Another way that could happen, you could, get, you could steal from somebody. And you get caught stealing, and they say, okay, to make restitution, you're going to go work for that guy until you've paid him back for what you've stolen. And the other thing that could happen, they could be born into a family filled with slaves. Now, does God condone slavery? What's the answer? No. Now, I will say this. I'll make an I'll make a addendum to that. It all depends on who the master is. Because he wants us to be slaves to him. Amen? And we're going to talk about that in the text. To a, to a, a man uh, done by force, no. To God, bound by love, absolutely. And we're going to talk about exactly what it means to be a slave or a servant of the Lord. In this case, this slave is more of a, a servant, again, bound by duty. He has to pay off a debt. Now look here, he's, what he says here, he, once he serves you six years, then the seventh year, you're to let him go. You think some people are looking forward to that seventh year? Dude, how much time we got? All my debt's paid for. The other guy's like, dude, I get to go. I'm out of here. I don't have to work as an indentured servant anymore. You can imagine that this was a, a time that people looked forward to in a great way, unless they own a bunch of stuff and people owed them money and they were trying to collect it before it got to that time, right? Now, it's interesting that this six-in-one pattern throughout the Bible is awesome. Six days, God created the heavens and the earth, and the seventh day, He rested, right? Six days of creation. The seventh month of the Jewish calendar, you see the Day of Atonement, and you see all the feasts that point to Christ. You had six years of planting crops and one year of no harvest. Now the Bible says this, a day is to a thousand years as a thousand years is to a, to a day. Six thousand years in bondage to sin and death, and then when Christ returns, we have a thousand year millennial reign with Him. So we have six days, and on the seventh day, Sabbath, where we enter into His rest. Now it's interesting that from Adam to Christ, it's approximately 4,000 years. From Christ to now, it's been 2,000 years. How many years is that? 6,000 years. That means that He can come anytime. Amen? And I'm looking forward to it. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. O Lord, come. Amen? And so we should live every day in expectance of His soon return. But that's six days, and then that day of rest... It's not by chance that it's in the Bible. Verse 13. And when you send him away, okay, when you send away this man who was your indentured servant, after six years on the seventh year you let him go. When you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from the threshing floor, from your wine press, from what the Lord has blessed you with, you shall give to him. So when this servant went away, his master was not to leave him empty-handed. He was to give him the gifts necessary to succeed. But I want you to note what he sent him out with. He gave him lambs and sheep. He gave him corn or flour, right, that, from the threshing floor to make bread with. And he gave him wine. Now, 
When they came out of bondage in Egypt, God gave them wealth to sustain them in the wilderness, right? They all left with as much as they could carry. When somebody came out of bondage, God gave them something to sustain them. But I want you to notice something here, that the very thing that they carried with them is a picture of the one who delivered them. Because who's the bread of life? Jesus Christ. He's born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means house of bread. Beth in the Bible is house. Laham is house of bread. Bethel, house of God, right? So every time you see the word Beth, that's house of, house of bread. The wine. When Jesus, at the Last Supper, right, what did he say about the, when he held up the wine? He said, this is my what? This is my blood. And then also the sheep or the lamb that was given. When Jesus came in his baptism, they said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And when they made sacrifice, even then they sacrificed a firstborn spotless lamb. So the very things that were given to this man that's been delivered from bondage as a servant were the very things that pointed to the one who had delivered him. Jesus is on every page of the Bible. Amen? Every page of the Old Testament. Verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this thing today. What was it that delivered them out of bondage in Egypt? What was the last plague? What was it? Passover. Talked about this repeatedly. But Passover was when they took the blood of a lamb, and they took the blood of that lamb, and they took a hyssop branch. Remember, what, what, what did they put the sponge on and hold it up to Christ? Hyssop, all right, not by chance in the Bible. Took a hyssop branch, they put blood on it, and they put it on the doorpost in the shape of a cross in the very spots where Jesus would bleed from. And those who had the the blood of the lamb applied to the doorpost, the angel of death passed over, and they were delivered from the angel of death. If that's not a picture of the cross, you're not paying attention. Amen? Now, what's interesting about that is it's not good enough to have the blood of the lamb. It had to be applied to the doorpost. And it's not good enough to know about Jesus Christ. You must have applied His blood to your own life. You must have repented of your sin and sought forgiveness. And so we see here again a very clear picture in the Passover. You know, when you were delivered out of Egypt, Egypt, the Lord God, what's the word there? Redeemed you. What does redeem mean? To purchase back. He bought you back. He purchased you back. They've been graciously delivered. They've been blessed. They've been set free. And these slaves were now leaving, owing nothing. They had no rights previously, but now they've been blessed, they've been released, they've been set free, and they've been given what they would need to to be able to sustain life going forward. You and I, when we were born again, we've been set free from sin and death. We've been given the Holy Spirit to live inside of us so we can sustain a godly life until He returns. Amen? Picture of Jesus yet again. You and I were slaves to sin, but no longer. And praise God for that. Now... Jesus left heaven, and He took on humanity, and He paid the debt for us, and He shed His blood on the cross, and we too should remember that we've been delivered. They were never to forget their bondage in Egypt, because the Lord wanted them constantly to remember. He wanted them to to think about it daily. That's why they brought sacrifices morning and night. He didn't want them to get to the point where they forgot about what they've been delivered from. And you and I need to do the same. Agape, love in action. For God so loved the world. Look what it says here in verse 16. And if it happens that he says to you, I will not go away from you. 
because he loves you and your house since he prospers with you. Then you shall take an awl and thrust it through his ear to the door and he shall be your servant forever. Also to your female servant you shall do likewise. So the six years passes, he's paid his debt and it's time for him to go free. And he says to you, you know what? I don't want to go. I love you. I want to stay with you. Where before I was here because I was indebted to you, now I'm in here out of love for you. I'm no longer bound by duty, now I'm bound by love. I just want to stay. I want to be in your house. I want to serve you. Not because I have to, but because I want to. So what were they supposed to do in those cases? It becomes, it says, I love you. I love your house. I want to stay with you. This has become my home. Then what they were supposed to do is they're supposed to take them, this is free choice, and they're supposed to take him out and bring him before the judges. And the judges would see that he had made this decision of his own free will. And then to seal the decision, the master would take an all. And he would take it, and the, guy, the, the servant who says, I want to be yours for the rest forever, would stick his ear against the door. And he would take this all, like a spike, and he would drive it through his ear. And blood would splatter on the doorpost, and now there was an all in his ear, and that all stayed in there forever. And it was a constant reminder that I'm spoken for, I'm taken, I'm a bondservant by choice, I've given my life to my master, I love him, not out of duty, but out of love for him. Now what's interesting is, again, that's a picture of the Passover. Because where was the blood put on Passover? On the doorpost. And so this slave went and he put his ear against the door and he willingly was enslaved to his master and said, I want to give my life to my master. Now there's a twofold picture here, both of Christ and his willingness to lay down his life for you and I that we might have eternal life. If you look in Psalm 40, it says of Jesus, my ears you have opened. And Isaiah 50 shows that Jesus' character as a willing slave was most perfectly shown on the cross. It says, The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me, my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting, for the Lord God will help me. Therefore I was not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. So it was driven through his ear, blood was put on the door, but what did it do to his ear? It pierced his ear. What did they do to our Savior's hands? What did they do to his feet? What we see here again is a very clear picture of our Savior. But you know what? It should be a picture of you and I as well. Because what, is Paul, what did Paul and Peter refer to themselves as? Bondservants. Paul and Peter will say, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Somebody who is enslaved to their master by choice because I love him. I want to serve him. There's no place for me to go. If the Lord said, okay, Dave, you can go wherever you want, I want to stay with you. Amen? Where else am I going to go? You're my master. You're my Lord. You're my Savior. You're my God. You're my King. I want to stay right here with you. And a bondservant is a permanent relationship. Once that ear was pierced, it could never be reversed. You know, and that's another picture to me that once saved, always saved. Some of you might not disagree with me, or might disagree with me, and that's okay. But I believe very clearly that once we've been born again, truly born again, we will endure to the end, and God is not going to let go of us. The Bible says he'll never snatch you out of his hand. No one's ever going to take you out of his hand. No one's ever going to take your salvation from you. If you've truly been born again, you will endure. 
Now, some people will say, well, Pastor Dave, what about people who walk away from God and to reject Him and deny Him the rest of their life? I would say they were never saved because if they were, they wouldn't do it. Amen? Because if, if the Holy Spirit's come to live inside of me, I'm still going to make mistakes, but when I sin, I'm going to be convicted by my sin. And it's going to bring me back into a right relationship before the Lord. So they love the title, a slave, servant of Jesus, out of love. We're all slaves. It's just a matter of what we're slaves to. We were born in our sin, and we were slaves to sin, death, and the world. But by rebirth, by being born again, we are now slaves to righteousness, new creations in Christ. Let me ask you a question. Why, don't, don't answer, but why did you come to church tonight? Why do you read your Bible? Why do you share your faith? Why do you worship? Is it out of love or out of duty? Now some of you, if you're honest, some of that you might say, I do it because I'm supposed to. I know I'm supposed to, so I do it. You know what? May we get to the place in our walk with God that all we do is because we love Him. Nobody had to put a gun to my head to go tell me to court my wife. You know, you probably should take her out on a date. You probably should go take her to dinner and spend time with her and talk to her and you know, be nice to her so she'll marry you, right? But no, nobody had to tell me. Why? Because God gave, I had a passion for her. I wanted to be with her. I wanted to spend time with her. You know what? We're to love God more. Amen? And so reading the Word is... Letting God talk to me. What kind of relationship would I have with my wife if I just, every time she talked to me, I, 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 right? Not very good. But some of us, we talk to God, and then we never open our Bible, right? So we're going, ah, la, la, and then when he, ah, la, la, we don't listen. This is how God speaks, one of the many ways, this is the main way God speaks to you, amen? I mean, I'm just not hearing from God. When's the last time you read your Bible? Amen? I have people say that all the time. Well, I'm not hearing from the Lord. Well, have you opened it up? Have you read the Bible? You know, he, he could speak with an audible voice, but it's not likely. He's giving you this. You know, get this nailed and he might speak to you. Amen? This is good enough. And so we need to pray because that's how we speak to God. It's one of the ways we speak to God. And we need to read the Word so he can speak to us. And again, being obedient, having a heart to serve God, doing it out of love for the Lord, not out of duty. I don't want my wife to love me because someone hits her in the head with a mallet every time she doesn't, right? You're going to love him? Oh, yeah, I can't love him, right? No. I want my wife to love me because she knows me and loves me anyway, right? I mean, we should love God. God wants us to love him by our own free will. Amen? Not out of duty, not just out of fear, but out of love because he's a great God. Isn't he worthy to be loved? He's worthy to be worshipped, to be praised, and to be honored. He, he's such a great God. How can you not love someone who'd rather die than live without you? How can you not love someone who knows you best and loves you most? He knows every wicked thing you've ever done, and he loves you anyway. What a great God, amen? And he's not going to save me because I'm perfect, but because he's perfect. What a great God. How can we not love him? Verse 18. It shall not seem hard to you when you send away free from you, for he has been worth a double hired servant in the serving you the six years. And the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. Again, this is a word to those who are going to be hesitant about sending this person who is valuable. This guy's been working on my land. He's been great. Sending him away should be is difficult. He says, don't. You know what? When he's done, send him away. God will take care of you. Don't be afraid to be obedient to God. God is a faithful God. Lastly, agape love in action. Giving when it doesn't make sense. Giving your first fruits to the Lord. Verse 19. All the firstborn males that come, in, come 
from your herd and your flock, you shall sanctify to the Lord your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of the flock. So the firstborn was to be set apart to God. It was not to be used for work or for wool. Either one. And so they were to set this animal aside. And there's a couple of things about the firstborn. The firstborn was thought to be the best. So you were to give the best to God. We, don't get, we give God the best, not the rest. Amen? Give God the best of your time. Give God the best of your attention. Give God the best of your abilities. Give God the best of your finances. Give God the best. Don't give Him the rest. And so they were to give the firstborn. Now, who was described as the firstborn over creation? Jesus. Okay? So this is, again, a picture of Christ. And so they were to give this firstborn male. They were to do no work. They were to set it apart. Sanctify means set apart. And they were to set it apart unto the Lord. Now remember again, this was to be a constant reminder of their deliverance out of bondage in Egypt. Because which of the children of of Egypt died on Passover? The what? The firstborn. And which of those were delivered from the house of the children of Israel when they had the, the blood of the lamb? The firstborn. So every time that the you know, sheep had a bunch, of, uh, a bunch of baby sheep, a bunch of lambs, right? They pulled the firstborn out, and no doubt, what an opportunity to minister to your kids. They're pulling the firstborn out, and you look at the spotless, okay, this one belongs to the Lord. Go set it over there. Daddy, why does that one belong to the Lord? Because it's the firstborn, son. Well, why the firstborn? Well, because when we were in Egypt, and God delivered us out of bondage, It was the firstborn of the children of Egypt that died, and he delivered the firstborn of the children of Israel, including, you know, me or your grandpa or whoever it might have been. And they're able to, again, point back to God's deliverance every single time they made sacrifice. For you and I today, we don't make sacrifice anymore, but you know what we do? We take communion. And we take communion. You know what we're doing? We're looking back to the cross. We're looking inward at our own hearts before God. And we're looking forward to the time we'll be around Again, with him, and we'll take the Lord's Supper in heaven. And so for them, that's what it was like. It was a remembrance of their deliverance out of bondage. And so they were to give the firstborn the best they had to the Lord. You and your household shall eat it before the Lord your God, year by year, in the place where the Lord chooses. So what did they do with that firstborn? They had to bring it to the temple. They had to bring it to the tabernacle. The only place they could sacrifice this animal was sacrificed by the priest on the altar, at the tabernacle, and then, after that happened, a portion of it, they sat down and ate with the priest, and in a sense, had fellowship with God. Now, why is that significant? Because the firstborn is a picture, again, of Christ. There's only one place where the sacrifice could take place. If you were here when we went through Exodus and Leviticus, the altar is a picture of what? The what? The cross. Remember four points on the altar? They would take the blood and put on all four horns, Do you know that the actual size of the altar is a perfect size for a man to lay down on it? And so they had to take the lamb to the altar. Only there could it be sacrificed. And once the sacrifice was made, this firstborn perfect lamb, then they had fellowship with God and they had a meal with him. Well, guess what, guys? It's only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross that you and I can have fellowship with God. Amen? Another picture of Jesus in Deuteronomy chapter 15. Gotta love the Bible. It rocks. Okay, we're almost done. Verse 21. But if there's a defect in it, it is lame or blind or has any serious defect, you shall not sacrifice it to the Lord your God. You may eat it within your gates. The unclean and the clean person alike may eat it. 
as it were, a gazelle or a deer. So if it's imperfect, it was not, you could not be sacrificed. Why? Because it's a picture of, of Jesus. And that's why no other man could die for your sins. Because every other man is an imperfect lamb, in a sense, right? Every other man is flawed. Every other man is sinful. Muhammad can't pay for your sin. Joseph Smith can't pay for your sin. Charles Taze Russell can't pay for your sin. Mary Baker, these are all religious leaders of the day. L. Ron Hubbard claimed to be God, then he died. It didn't work out too well. But you know what? He can't, die for your, he can't pay for your sin either. Why? Because he's a sinner. So it must be the perfect firstborn spotless lamb, and it must be at the place of sacrifice. And then fellowship takes place. And then lastly it says, Only you shall not eat its blood. You shall pour it on the ground like water. They were never to eat blood. Why? Because it says in the Bible that life is in the blood. And so they're not to eat the blood. Now, isn't it interesting that the Bible says there's life in the blood, and all these years later we're figuring out that's really true, isn't it? DNA and all those kinds. I mean, it's amazing what's in blood. And by the way, if you don't have blood, you die. Right? So life's in the blood. Right? But what's interesting is they were not to eat the blood because blood was for atonement, not for nourishment. Blood was for atonement, and the blood had to be poured out on the ground. Why? Because when Jesus died on the cross, where was his blood poured out? On the ground. Again, another picture of the Lord here in the Old Testament. So, agape love in action, giving when it doesn't make sense, entering into the Sabbath rest, giving God the first fruits of our time, releasing the debts of others, giving generously to those who can never even repay us, bound to God by love, not by duty giving our first fruits to the Lord. And then, as our, our calling as Christians, that's our calling as Christians, but the ultimate fulfillment in every one of these things has been seen through the work of the cross. Because when Jesus died on the cross, He paid the debt that you and I can never pay. He set us free from sin and death, and they're no longer in bondage to it. We become His slaves, bound to Him alone. He did it out of love for you, not out of duty, and He did it all that you might enter into His rest. Can I encourage you, if you're here tonight and you're struggling, the Lord loves you, and the Lord has such a wonderful plan and a, a desire to do great things in your life. And if we will simply just obey Him, we'll simply just come to Him and say, Lord, here I am. Use me for Your glory. May we not be so busy that can't, God can't use us. May we not be so busy chasing after the things of this world that are perishing that we miss out on the things that are eternal. May we have that kind of agape love, that selfless love. May we have a love that reaches out to the world around us. May we give when it just doesn't make sense. May we give of our time. May we give of our abilities. May we give of our finances. Because you know what? We can't outgive God. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word and we thank you for the promises in it. And Lord, we just thank you for all these clear pictures of our Savior. I just love all these Old Testament pictures that over and over and over again point to your Son. Lord, we thank you that you suffered and died that we don't have to. You suffered and died and paid the price for sin that we don't have to. Lord, I pray for anybody here tonight that, Lord, that doesn't know you, that, Lord, you'd open their eyes to the truth of your love and your grace and your mercy. I pray for us, Lord, if we we're putting other things in front of you. Lord, if we're so caught up in this world that we're not having an impact on it like we should. Help us, Lord, to seek first the kingdom of God, to put you above all else. Lord, we continue to lift up Santa Cruz, Lord. May you bring revival here and may it start in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.